0: So we started this new series on discipleship a few weeks ago, and um, if you're looking for a sermon on Thanksgiving, don't keep looking for it, because I'm not doing it, okay? Just, I'll get that out of the way right away. I don't want you to looking for how he's going to connect this to Thanksgiving, it's not coming. Um, so we started this series on discipleship a few weeks ago, if you remember, and, and we started by looking at one of the shortest parables uh, of Jesus, the treasure in the field. Uh, which you find in Matthew 13:44, and it's very short, so I'll just repeat it so we remember our, our sort of heart of discipleship, which is the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. And so we looked at it, and we realized that while this parable clearly, because it says it is, is talking about the kingdom of heaven on the one hand, We discovered together that it is also teaching us something profoundly important about the man, about the person, who although he stumbles upon this treasure in a field, he immediately values it, he immediately cherishes this treasure, and he joyfully goes to sell all that he has to acquire it. So the parable does talk about the kingdom of heaven and the value and the worth of it that we talked about, but it tells us something about The man who pursues that treasure tells us about us as we should be disciples. The parable is about affection, it's about value, and it's about joy. And the parable teaches us that a disciple is someone who values God, who cherishes God, and most amazingly discovers that they can joyfully exchange anything that they have in order to be with God. And so discipleship, the heart of discipleship, as we go through this series, and I just want to keep it really simple, this parable is the heart of discipleship. That discipleship is about joy found in glorifying God and treasuring and cherishing God. And so we actually understand very well the intrinsic connection that God has made between treasuring or cherishing or affection for something and joy. The two are linked together because God designed them that way. And you can just think back to your early days of dating. Or if you're a teenager here this morning, you can just think about your current crush, right? We have all either been victim of or have seen our friends, in our friends, the signs of life altering affection. Right? We remember being or seeing these poor sods, because they're usually men, (laughs) mooning over the love of their life. And they want to spend every minute with her. They will do anything to please her. They will spend any amount on her. As the Robert Palmer song goes, she's so fine, there's no telling where the money went. (laughs) She's simply irresistible. But when we see these young men or women, I suppose they can feel the same way, I don't know. Somebody with daughters can tell me if that's true. We both pity them and we envy them. We pity them because they have set their whole heart on the person of their affection and the person of their desire and everything that they are and what they have is on the table. Anything can be sold or exchanged in order just to spend one more bit of time with her. And at the same time, as we pity them, we also envy them because we know that despite the late nights and despite the long commutes from the city or wherever they have to come from to see them or the money that is flying out of their wallets, we envy them because they are absolutely filled to the brim with joy, right? They're so happy in their love that nothing else matters. And so we envy the intensity of their joy when they're in that frame of mind. And that's not an accident. God has designed us to find joy when our love is right. We're wired to find joy when we offer our love and we give glory in the proper place. And so so much so that when we find a worthy place for our affections, we treasure it. We'll spend anything on it. We'll bind ourselves to it. And that's what this parable is about. That's the parable of the treasure in the field. This man found a treasure that he so adored and so cherished and so loved that he would give up anything for it. He would joyfully go to sell all of his possessions to receive it. And so that's what the parable should teach us about God. He is of ultimate worth. He's the ultimate treasure. He's the ultimate person of our affection, worthy of all of our love, all of our honor for his glory. But the beautiful reciprocation is for our joy in loving him in that way. Now that's a review. We already talked about all that two weeks ago but it's worth remembering because as I said that parable would form the heart of our focus on discipleship and discipleship is treasuring or glorifying God and being filled with joy in the process of it. So there is no conflict between God's glory and our joy. In fact, our joy is enriched in the most ultimate sense in our glory of God. And so to set our affections on anything less than God is to settle for a lesser joy and eventually no joy. So as disciples then, if this is about discipleship, what produces in us glorifying, God-glorifying joy? And that's what we want to look at today. One of the things, and we're going to look at a few different things over the next few weeks that are intended to to create in us God-glorifying joy. And some of them will be surprising. In the first verse of our text from last week, which is Titus, chapter 2, verse 1, the apostle Paul wrote, If you remember this, we moved on from this verse, but he was teaching Titus how to build up disciples in his church, and he said, you must teach what is appropriate from sound doctrine. And in 2 Timothy, another young protege of Paul's, another young pastor, he was teaching in 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul writes to another guy, he says the same lesson for him. He says in 2 Timothy 1.13, what you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. And so we have sound doctrine and sound teaching. And I know that some of you, just like in the beginning of this, when I mentioned discipleship, you kind of, hearts kind of sank. And I know that some of you shrivel up a little bit at those words like teaching and doctrine. And you say, Pastor Paul, you just said that being a disciple was 100% about joy, focusing on joy in God. We should be talking about the Holy Spirit. We should be talking about worship. We should be talking about something else other than sound teaching and doctrine because doctrine is like the least joyful thing I can think of, right? Doctrine is what people fight over. Doctrine is a downer. A focus on doctrine is a good way to kill joy in our faith, isn't it? Well, no not if you're a disciple it isn't what i hope to discover in this first pattern of discipleship is that god intends that his disciples be filled with true joy and ever-rising affections for him through words through teaching through doctrine specifically through his word So the apostle Paul said to Timothy, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, or perhaps a little more accurately translated in in almost all the other translations other than the NIV, it says, hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you heard from me. So Paul is saying to Timothy, I spoke sound words to you, it's important that you hold to the pattern of those words that I spoke and what they teach you. Well, what is it? What were these words that, that Paul, this pattern of teaching of Paul's? Well, let's see if we can find this anywhere else. If you go maybe closer to the source, definitely closer to the source in John chapter 17, Jesus is speaking to his disciples near the end of his ministry. And if you have a red letter Bible and you were to open to John 17, you would see that almost that entire chapter is in red. Because it's Jesus, what we call his high priestly prayer. And this is Jesus' prayer to his disciples. And the key verse that we're looking at is 17.13, but I want to look at it in the context of 11 and 12 coming before. And in verse 11, Jesus is saying, I am coming to you, Father, and I won't be in the world much longer. And so keep keep them, keep my disciples. And then in verse 12, Jesus says, While I was here, I guarded them, I kept them, these disciples. But then he goes on to verse 13 for us today and he says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father in the hearing of his disciples. And he says, I guarded them while I was here, and now I'm going. But while I was here, I spoke things into the world so that my disciples could have the full measure of my joy. Just stop and think about that for a minute. Think about what that sentence is saying. Jesus spoke words into the world so that we could experience the full measure of Jesus' joy. Wow. I think Jesus had some joy, right? I think he was joyful in the extreme, the pinnacle of joy in his relationship with the Father. And he says he spoke words for us to gain the full measure of that joy. Incredible. What kind of things did Jesus speak that could have the full measure of his joy in our life? Well, he said things like, and I can't go into them all, obviously, we go through all the Gospels, but He said things like, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he says things like, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What are these things that Jesus is saying? I don't want to startle you here, but it's doctrine. Okay, these are propositional truths about the reality of God and Jesus and our salvation. That's doctrine. That's what Jesus spoke into the world. He spoke truth about himself and God and us and the covenant. And so it's through the propositional truths about the doctrine that Jesus spoke that we can gain the full measure of his joy. And a lot of what Jesus spoke was an explanation of the Old Testament. He quoted Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and the books of wisdom and he showed how everything that was written was written about him and the joy that could result. You'll remember in Luke chapter 24 after his resurrection and you remember he's walking with the disciples or with the the people on the road to Emmaus. And he says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus spoke words to these people from the scripture about himself. And then afterwards in verse 32, when they reflect on what happened, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? and opened the scriptures to us the result for them was their hearts were burning it affected them their joy they were listening to jesus preach the gospel from his own scripture and their hearts were on fire for what they heard him speak so joy has always been the proper product of understanding God's Word. As you open up the Scripture, and you open up God's Word, and you're wondering, why am I reading this, and I can't make any sense of it, understand this, the purpose of the words of God, of the words of Jesus, is to produce in you joy. So when I say discipleship is about joy, but as disciples we need to be reading the Bible and understanding doctrine, those are not conflicting statements doctrine and truth and scripture is about joy jesus said i spoke these things into the world so that they could have the full measure of my joy we can go back farther if you want we can go back and see this pattern even in the old testament this is not a new thing that came along with jesus if you go back to the book of nehemiah the book of ezra and nehemiah give us the story of the people of israel who are returning back to jerusalem And they're returning back to Jerusalem after a period of captivity to restore the city and rebuild the temple and the walls. This is a people that were in captivity because of their abandonment of God. So it's not just the 70 years of captivity, it's the generations of abandonment before that. This is a people of Israel who really didn't know God anymore. They didn't really have a clue who he was, but they were sent back. And they are to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. And Nehemiah chapter 8 tells us of this amazing event that takes place when most of the walls are rebuilt and two waves of refugees have returned to Jerusalem and all the people are gathering here in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. They gather in this giant plaza in front of one of the gates of Jerusalem and they build a special platform, maybe not unlike this. They build a wooden platform and the prophet Ezra opens up the books of the law And he begins to teach the people of Israel from this platform, from the scripture. And you think, okay, that's interesting. That's neat. It says in Nehemiah 8.8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Okay, so this was a church service going on here, right? They held a church service, probably the first one in who knows how many generations, but the thing is, and you can go through this, it's an amazing chapter, but the thing is to notice the result. Nehemiah 8.12 tells of the result of this church service, which went from early morning until afternoon. It says, Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, which means to share for those that were in need, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Did you get that? They understood the scripture, and so they went away with joy. The purpose of God's word is to produce joy. Did you ever think of it that way before? That scripture and the word of God is meant to produce in you, as disciples of his, joy The Word of God are the field in which we discover the treasure of God and His promises. They are where we learn about Jesus and our incredible salvation. That's where we, you know, for the first time kick over the lump of dirt that reveals to us who God is and what He has done to save us. And they provide the pattern of sound or solid teaching that is meant to transform us because in them we are able to discover who God is and they allow us to glorify him properly because they paint for us the best possible picture of who this inscrutable, mysterious, almighty, eternal God is. You're never going to know him except in the book that he wrote for you. And go back even earlier, if you go back to Samuel 3.21, it says, The Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. The scriptures are there to show us God, and in showing us God, produce joy. And so this is why every pastor loves preaching, or they should. This is why I can't preach anything other than these words of these scriptures. These truths, because I know they are the fountainhead, that these words are the headwaters, they're the source of my own joy, and I know they will be the source of your joy and the source of God's glory as we enjoy him. And this is an important truth that we have to understand as we sort of go through our haphazard discipleship lives. Jesus is not honored, nor is God glorified most, by the various explorations and theories and interpretations that we have about him. He is not glorified by our intuitive speculations about the nature of his love or his sovereignty or what we think God should be like or what we think salvation should be. He's not most glorified by our speculation any more than your wife or your husband would be honored by your examination and speculation about the faithfulness of their love. Would you ever go to your spouse and say, don't worry, honey, I don't really need to spend time with you learning to experience who you really are personally and intimately From an actual knowledge of you, my love of you and my honoring of you is fine just based on the things that I assume about you. You think that would fly? Try that out sometime. Say to them, you know what, the important thing is not that I do know you, it's just that I'm on a journey to know you. No, that doesn't work. We would never claim to really love and glorify our spouse, but not spend any time getting to know them or who they are. And here's the kicker. Neither would our joy be complete in them. Our joy is complete in the love of our life because we know them so intimately. And the more intimately we know them, the more we enjoy them. And it's the same with God. We need to know God better. D.A. Carson writes in A Cult of Spiritual Reformation, a book that he wrote, great book. He says, the one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better, he writes. And I think Carson is correct. Western Christians, Western disciples need a deeper knowledge of God to discover a deeper joy in God. And one of the key means of that, as we have looked at, is by the words of God. If you go back and look again with me in the Gospel of John in chapter 15, Jesus didn't say it once, he said it more than once. In John 15, 7, Jesus says the same thing. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Now, we only need to look at the first half of this verse. At the moment, because they illuminate the power of Jesus' words for us as disciples. Okay, verse 7 is actually the third use of the paired phrase abide in me and we're just going to run through them in verse 4 jesus says abide in me and i in you and the result will be that you bear fruit and then in verse 5 he says i am the vine and you are the branches he who abides in me and i in him he bears much fruit and there's the pair again abide in me and i in you and we abide in jesus and he abides in us and then in verse 7 instead of using the exact same pair If you abide in Me and I in you, Jesus rather says, If you abide in Me and My words abide in you. He changes it the third time through. And He says, If I abide and My words abide in you. And I think the point of that is to show the equivalence and the importance of Jesus' words as they relate to His abiding. Or as they relate to His presence in us. In order for Jesus to abide in us, His words must also abide in us. It means that we welcome His words into our life. We welcome Him to speak into our lives. Jesus is not just an idea. Christianity is not just a philosophy. He is not just an icon of a religion. Jesus is living and authoritative. Jesus has commands. And he has values and he has principles that we live by. He has a demeanor. He has a character. He has a nature which we adopt as Christians. And we do all of this through his words. Letting the words of Jesus abide in you means taking whatever steps are necessary to keep the living voice of Jesus speaking to you through the words that he spoke in Scripture. It's a spiritually intentional act of relating to Jesus as a living person when you take his words into your mind. This is the importance of Scripture in discipleship. The purpose of discipleship is joy. The purpose of Scripture is to create in us joy as we glorify God. We only have that joy as we glorify God if we get to know who God is through his word. And that's what Jesus says, as I abide in you, if I abide in you and my words abide in you. There is this connection between the words of Jesus and his abiding within us and us knowing who he is. Well, what are some practical ways to do this? Seven things I want to give you here to allow the word of Jesus to abide in us as disciples. And you don't necessarily have to go away today and do all seven, okay? It'd be neat if you just took two of them and did them. But seven ways for the word of God to to abide in you so that you can increase your joy and affection of God and glorify him all the more. First of all, remind. Remind yourself of the reasons that meditating on the scriptures is good for you. Remember what Jesus said in John 15:11. This is the second time he linked his words to joy. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy might be full. He said it again, so he said it in 15 and in 17. I've spoken these words to you so that your joy might be full. Print that verse out and paste it on your fridge. Stick it on your cell phone case. Write it inside your daytime cover if you still use one of those. Or put Psalm 19, 7 to 11 in there that talks about the value of the precepts of the Lord. Take a verse and stick it in front of you every day so that you are reminded of the purpose of Scripture in your life. And then secondly, schedule. Put a time and a place to read the Bible in your calendar for each day the same way you would a person. Jesus is the most important person that you can spend time with today, and tomorrow, and the next day, and forever. There is nobody you can spend time with that is more important than Jesus. And so you need to schedule that time to spend with him. A lot of Bible reading doesn't happen just because we don't schedule it. We don't have a time and a place set aside to happen. Nobody, no golfer misses a tea time. Thousands of Christians miss Bible reading time. What's more important, tea time or Bible reading time, right? There are thousands of fans that never miss 8 o'clock on Wednesday for Survivor. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians who miss just 15 minutes in a day with Jesus. So schedule the time. Thirdly, plan your Bible reading. Know ahead of time how you're going to read the Bible. There's lots of Bible reading plans out there. You can just Google Bible reading plan and you will get... A hundred of them. Take any of them. Some of them take you through the Bible in a year, but you don't have to do that. There's no special spiritual prize for reading the Bible in a year. It's fine if you want to do the Old and the New Testament kind of equal amounts of reading, which means, because the New Testament is a lot smaller, you'll probably read through the New Testament four or five times when you get through the Old Testament once. And that's okay. You can do it that way. You can take two years. You can take three years. But take time to plan how you're going to read the Bible so that when you approach that Bible reading time, It's meaningful, and you're getting through it. Have some sort of a plan. Fourthly, memorize, and this one is tough. In Jesus' day, and we know about the memories of people in the past, right? They memorized all those, you know, Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad, and and they had these people that just had amazing memories, and and the Levites would regularly memorize. They had to memorize the entire law and the prophets. You know, every student of a scribe memorized the entire Bible of their day. You know, today I can't even remember a phone number, because my cell remembers the phone number for me, right? I can't even remember my own phone number because I don't even call it. You know, so I struggle with this one too. I struggle with memorization, but I put it in here because it's something that we need to do to put God's word into our scriptures. My mom's here today, she's got three boys. She never gets our names right, ever. (laughs) She can look right at us and call me Peter. So I get it that memorization is hard. I mean, I don't know how she does it. Yeah, I know, I've only got one, that's right, that's not fair. Sometimes I just call him the boy, because I can't remember. But I get it, memorization is hard, but it's on the list. We need, as a people, to be putting the word of God into our hearts. Fifthly, journal. And this one is the easiest, I think, and the most highly effective. You want the most bang for your buck, do this one. Just as I suggested with prayers back in the spring when we did the prayer series. Journal your Bible reading. Writing lets us see the scripture more clearly. It has a way of letting us see things through our pen or through our pencil that our eyes will just go over quickly if we read in a hurry. Writing things down slows us. Writing things down slows us down. And so sometimes people ask me after I preach or after we talk or whatever, or I talk about a scripture, and they'll say, I never see that. How do you see the things that I haven't seen in certain verses? You know, when I preach or when I talk to them. And I'll tell you that one of the ways, one of the key ways is that I've just written it down. That I've just written it down. Sometimes I write it down 10, 12, 15, 20 times. I've just written it down. And even better, I've gone back when I'm doing it right. I've gone back and I've marked the words with my pencil crayons correctly. All you precept people out there know what I'm talking about, (laughs) right? If I'm doing it right, I've written it down and I've marked it with my colored pencil crayons. Because that's how you really read. That's how you slow down and the word speaks to you. So journal your Bible reading. And the sixth one is a retreat. And I never thought of this one before. I got this from an internet blog that I was reading this week. But it's so smart, I'm going to try it. Periodically take time, take a retreat just for Bible reading and prayer to be a part of it too, obviously, but commit yourself to saturate yourself on Bible reading for an entire day or maybe even an entire weekend. Just set aside a whole chunk of time to retreat into Bible reading and just saturate yourself with hours of slow, worshipful engagement with Jesus in his word. And then the seventh one is read, which is... Kind of weird, because isn't this about reading? But yes, but what I mean is to add to your Bible reading, reading other good Christian writers. Part of this pattern of sound doctrine and pattern of sound teaching that Paul is talking about is reading teaching that's based on good doctrine and good scripture analysis. Remember in Nehemiah, when Ezra and the other teachers were reading the scriptures, the verse says they gave the sense of or they explained the meaning of the scriptures as they read them. So as you're doing Bible reading, I'm encouraging you to also read good Christian books. Good Christian authors who write about scripture and doctrine is like reading the Bible through the minds and hearts of other great lovers of God. So don't let big books scare you. Don't let doctrinal books scare you. Don't let non-fiction scare you. You don't have to read all of the book, you know. I think one of the worst lessons that we were accidentally taught in school was that you read books cover to cover. All books you must read cover to cover, you know, and that's not true of reading. You don't have to do that. You can pick up a book, look in the table of contents, pick the two chapters that are the best for you right now, and just read those and then set the book down. That's okay. I'm giving you permission to do that because a lot of times you get a 300 or 400 page book on the Holy Spirit or whatever, and you're thinking, I'm not reading that. I can't do 400 pages on justification. But you can open that up and you can see a couple chapters and you can say, that's intriguing. I never thought of that. I'm going to read those chapters. So I'm giving you permission. You don't have to read cover to cover. But the fact is that we need to do more reading as disciples. The word of God, of course, but we need to read people who are illuminating the scriptures to us. And I get the fact that a lot of us aren't readers. It's the most common thing I hear in discipleship. It really is, I think, now as I think about it. It pretty much is the most common thing I hear in discipleship, especially when it comes to men. Well, I'm not a reader. I don't read. I'm not a reader. I get it. I get the fact that maybe some of you, probably maybe even most of you, have not read one complete book all the way through this year. Because a lot of people aren't readers, but we need to be. And so I just want to break it down for you, and this is where we're wrapping up here soon. I just want to break down this last point for you on reading. Suppose you read slowly. If you read at about the same speed as you speak normally, people speak at different speeds, but about 200 words a minute, If you read 15 minutes a day for one year, you are going to read for 5,475 minutes. So you take that and you multiply it by 200 words a minute, and you'll get 1,095,000 words. Now the average book has about 360 words per page, but between 300 and 450, depending on how it's typed up. And so you would have read 360 words into 1,000, 1,000,000, 3,000 pages in one year. So there's a lot of fantastic books on the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of great books out there on prayer and on the gospel and on justification and on sanctification and on anything biblical. And there are tons of books out there that are about 300 pages each. So you can read 10 complete books a year in 15 minutes a day. So all you non-readers out there, just think about that. Is there anything that you are currently spending 15 minutes doing in your day? Or let's say you're spending 30 minutes or 60 minutes that you're doing that might possibly be less valuable than reading about the greatest truths and doctrines of the Christian faith. You think you've got 15 minutes? You can read 10 books a year in 15 minutes a day. And so I just put that out there to you, to read. If you've ever wondered why we spend every Sunday opening up the book of the Bible, opening up scriptures, this is why. If you are serious about being a disciple of Jesus, you have to open up scriptures. And eventually you have to start to read some other people who are teaching and illuminating those scriptures. And it won't hurt you to open up a few other good books that amplify those words of the Bible. And that is how your heart will burn. It's like those men on the road to Emmaus. Your heart will burn with affection for the treasure that is Jesus. There is no other better place... There is no other place to find out who God truly is and what Jesus has done and all that is in store for you and the joy that is prepared for you except in the word of God. It's through the words of truth, of doctrine, of the things that God intends for us to discover through the prophets and through the words of Jesus. God intends for your Bible reading to be a source of joy in him. And so a life of discipleship is a lifetime of treasuring and finding joy in sound teaching and sound doctrine from the Word of God. A disciple discovers and nurtures their affection for God through the Word of God. And so doctrine and truth and the words of God are meant to be, and their purpose is, to be the source of our joy. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your Word like we thank you every Sunday. I keep saying that phrase because I do. I thank you for your word. It is the source of my joy. And I know it is the source of all of our joy because it reveals you and because through your word, Jesus, your son, abides in us and us in him. And that is the greatest treasure that you have prepared a plan to redeem us from our sinful nature and to transform us through your word that we change, that we are moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that we are set free from sin and put into the freedom of sanctification, that we are set free from lies and moved into truth, and then that we are transformed in that new kingdom day by day as we immerse ourselves in words that you spoke by your prophets, through your Son and your apostles. You spoke truth into the world. And it is the greatest joy to discover it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.